This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with clinical psychologist Dr. Jody Carrington. Based in Alberta, Canada, she's the author of the best-selling books Kids These Days and Teachers These Days. Much of Jody's work focuses on resilience, burnout, grief, and trauma, and she believes that reconnection is the answer to some of the root problems that so many of us face. Her new book is called Feeling Seen, Reconnecting in a Disconnected World, and she joins me today from Olds, Alberta. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You say that in the history of the world, we have never been more disconnected than we are now. And then, in fact, it's become an epidemic. How did we get here? I think that oftentimes there is the we're looking to blame one thing. It's the technological advances. It's the kids these days. It's the problems with sex, drugs and rock and roll, whatever it might be. I think there is a really unique change that has happened just in two generations that has really resulted in us playing by a set of rules that were established for a world that no longer exists. So I think it's things like primarily proximity to each other. We are neurobiologically wired for connection that we will never automate relationship. No matter how tech savvy we become, we will never automate relationship. If you disconnect from an infant, they die. Okay. Um, so I think our proximity to each other has, has changed dramatically in the last two generations. If you think about the square footage of the house that your grandfather was raised in and the square footage of the house in which we tend to raise our babies is significant, you know, the size of the schoolhouses, police detachments, any of those things has blown up, right? Um, if we think about an emotional language, our ability to communicate with each other face-to-face, I had to, if somebody died at the road, if you had a sudden death in your family, I would need to come to your house to navigate the situation and bring you the casserole. Now I can just send you a text. And here's what's interesting about this. The hardest thing we will do is look into the eyes of the people we love. So despite the fact that we're wired for connection. So now that we have so many exit ramps, I can just send you a text, call you, turn off my camera, do a video chat. I'd much rather do that. So it's this really unique crux that we're finding ourselves in that we won't ever automate it. We need it desperately now more than ever because we're so disconnected. Proximity between us is continuing to expand, which then is creating our ability to sort of gauge each other's reactions, even our nonverbal communication, our desire to sit down. I was, I got to tell you this because this has been on my head for the last two days. I read this story or I saw this meme where it was like, I watched this guy in Starbucks yesterday and he was sitting there with like no computer, no phone, no book, just like sitting there drinking his coffee like a psychopath. You know, like we're just so used to now, like, how do we get constant inundation from social media and news and we're bored? And if you, you watch anybody, if we step into an elevator together, right, we we don't look at each other. We don't start small talk. We look at our phones and you can't tell somebody how to be kind and engaged and that they're amazing. You have to show them. And if we look all the time and we don't see, there will be, this is the fundamental answer for the mental health crisis, in in my opinion. And it's only going to get worse in our respective lifetimes. Well, it's interesting because before we started this interview, you, I wanted to turn the camera off and you encouraged me not to do it. So we're doing this on camera, Jody. <laughs> we're connecting, we're connecting. Um, but one of the things that really blew me away uh, talking about mental health is that in the book, you talk about the fact that more people are dying 
from mental health issues than they are from cancer and heart attacks. I mean, that is kind of absolutely mind-blowing. And you say that to mitigate this and to truly build a stronger community that we need what you call a reconnection revolution. What does that look like to you? Well, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but I, but I think sometimes what happens in times of distress is we go back to what we know, right? And, you know, Grace Murray Hopper was one of the first female um, admirals in the U.S. Navy. And she has this beautiful quote that I often think about. She said, one of the most dangerous phrases in the English language is this, we've always done it this way. And historically, what we want to do when there's a problem is we want to, by brute force, by behavioral operations, fix it. So you try this, you do that. And this really comes from a philosophical understanding of behavior, which is if you make a good choice, I'm going to reward you. And if you don't make a good choice, I'm going to punish you. That's the philosophical practice that every major institution in this globe employs. Justice, education, uh, parenting, marriage, like all of these things. And that works so much more effectively when we had proximity to each other, right? I can take away stuff to make you be kind. I can reward the good behavior in the hopes that everybody else will understand how this works, right? But the less that was predicated on the fact that we spent much more time in direct connection to each other. That has changed drastically, as we just talked about in the last couple of generations, which means we have to change the way we play, which means we have to, on purpose, do a whole lot more connecting. Now, on the heels of the pandemic, which for the physical safety of our communities has meant that we have blown apart workplaces, we have sent everybody home for the physical safety of our schools, our hospitals, we have disconnected from each other in terms of PPE and masking and all of those things, which are are necessary, right? But now the issue is, how do we even now that we're in this even more heightened state of arousal, take that step to re-engage with our families and not feel anxious about it. Take that step to, do we handshake? Do we hug? Do we, you know, engage in those physical connections? And I mean, the data around this is really interesting because working from home is in, in some industries perfect, but it will be the demise of so many organizations because you cannot get the same innovation, creativity, and physical connection to the people you work with when you are holed up in your jammies every day. Even if you get dressed up in your home and do the work from home, um, very quickly, I think we will see an expedition of um, an expedited process around the mental health um, of our employees. You say that that one of the causes of disconnection is emotional dysregulation. And you've written a lot about this, but I want to really understand how can we recognize emotional dysregulation in ourselves? Okay, so I'll give you the definition. Emotional dysregulation is like losing your friggin' mind. And the people who are the most successful among us, the people who we employ the best, the people who we are, you know, the best friends with tend to be the ones who can keep their, their, their emotions together, right? Not lose their friggin' minds right? We like it best. We've always put a high emphasis in this culture on people who are emotionally regulated in this society. I like it when you stay calm. I don't like it when you're losing your mind. When we think about working with employees or when we serve people, even if we have a disgruntled client, my hope is that they can come to us and use their words, right? We like it when kids follow direction and use their manners. And the only way you learn how to stay calm in times of distress is to have somebody walk you through the hard stuff. Because you can't tell anybody how to regulate emotion. You've got to show them again and again and again. And it reminds me, I, I talk about this quote all the time by a dead guy named Ram Das. He said, we are all just here walking each other home. We were never meant to do any of this alone. 
And the more overwhelmed, disconnected, mentally ill we become, the more our response is to isolate, is to pull away, is to become divisive in our responses. We lose access to kindness and empathy, the more dysregulated we become. And the more regulated we are, our shoulders are dropped. We have access to kindness and grace and empathy, the best parts of ourselves. I don't think people are becoming more assholery-ish. I think they're losing access to the best parts of themselves. Because when you are calm and regulated, you're a phenomenal partner. When you are calm and regulated, you are an amazing employee. You're productive and insightful and creative. And you would give your, you know, the one of my favorite hockey coaches said this, I could get a kid You should see how fast I can get a kid to skate when I know the name of his dog. When people are acknowledged, they rise. And you do that most effectively when people feel seen. So how would you know that maybe you're experiencing emotional dysregulation aside from freaking out at another driver? I mean, how do we know this is something we need to work on in ourselves? All right. So the fundamental basis of emotional regulation is we all have it, right? Like there's a, there's a biological response to losing our minds when we're in danger. Okay. That that's fight, flight, or freeze. When you bring a baby home from the hospital, they don't have a lot of regulation skill on board. So they lose their mind. They cry. And the job of big people is to walk them home. And if I do that enough times with the children, a village, a, a group of people walking a baby through hard things, their coaches, their teachers, their aunties, their cookums, their grandmas, other things, they start to develop enough to sort of keep it together most times. If you've been surrounded, you know, for example, multiple generations of abuse, neglect, and trauma, if you are in the middle of a really difficult part in your life and there's very few people to sort of walk you through those things, um, you lose access to that, the best parts of yourself. We know that there's three things that contribute to the most dysregulated amongst us at any given time, and we will all experience this. So uncertainty, fear, and no end in sight tend to be the things that keep us, get to get us all to dysregulated states, right? And you will get in a dysregulated state every single day at some point. That's like anxiety. You feel anxious. You feel angry. Right. Or you feel something where you lose access to the best parts of yourself. Many times this is a biologically appropriate response. You walk out of your door today in Toronto and a dog jumps out of the bushes and tries to nip at you. Ah! I want you to get emotionally dysregulated. The, there's sometimes it's appropriate to get emotionally dysregulated to lose our minds, fight, flight, or freeze. And oftentimes, the more overwhelmed we become, that anxious response, that dysregulated or the opposite, that flat response comes in. And what we want to talk about is the more times we are connected with ourselves, the better able we are to give it away to the people we love and we lead and we teach and we care for. So we often look for solving the problems of this world. How do we help people with mental health issues? How do we help people who are struggling with, um, you know, house, housing security or financial insecurities? What do we, how do we help the people who are struggling with addiction? I think so much of the time is you can't give away something you've never received. I think it is time now more than ever to look to our employees way more than we look to the people we serve. Because if the people we have in our organizations aren't okay, the people we serve don't stand a chance. You know, you talk about this in the book, you say, focus on your team, the team around you that that makes sure they're all right. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. If you have any resources at all, here's your three priorities as we step into this next season. Okay. People trying to navigate post-pandemic mental health crisis, all of that kind of stuff. You, 
So who you wake up with in the morning, you're the number one most important thing. I can never say that enough. And it's not about the self-care bullshit as much anymore. Drink all the kale and do all the yoga you want. But if you are not emotionally regulated in your body, if you're not doing what you need to do to stay connected and grounded to the people you love, the people you wake up with, you will have a very difficult time stepping outside those doors and serving anybody. Okay. Second is the team you work with, whatever that looks like. If you're a mom who works from home, who is your network of people that keep you together? If you own your own company, you're an entrepreneur. And who are the people that sort of encourage you? If you're a company of one, who's your business coach? Who's your allies in the, in the community? And you, you know, who's the other people selling jewelry or whatever it is that you do? If you are running a nonprofit, who are the people you show up that you're asking to serve very dysregulated humans every single day? Those are the people that I want you to be most concerned about. How are we acknowledging each other, filling each other up, creating that culture that is going to be so necessary now? Then and only then do we worry about the people we serve. And it's it's a shift, but it's important. You, you, another thing that you talk about a lot uh, uh, that can cause disconnection, that does cause disconnection is shame or the shackles of shame, as you call it. What do you mean by that? So what I think is really interesting about emotion is that we put a high emphasis on the good ones. We want everybody to be happy. In fact, if I ask a parent, if I, you know, what is the wish you have for your child? Most times they say, I just want them to be happy. And the hard part about this is there's, there's no single emotion that's better than another. And the more you have practice at experiencing all of them, the more you'll be able to deal with them when, not if they come. And the more we try to protect the people we love or we lead to just feel the happiness. How do we just get you to be happy? I've never met anybody who's happy all the time. I don't, I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning and goes, Woo, I'm so happy with this 47 year old body on this five foot all Ukrainian chassis. It's what exactly what I hoped for this. would look. I roll over and I'm so happy. I married this friggin' farmer from old Alberta. I'm so happy with my children. No, nobody's happy. When we look at how do we infuse joy into our days? Those are the sudden bursts of emotion become much more important. And also understanding that, that there will be times of disappointment and sadness and shame and rejection, that if we don't avoid those, but have a plan for not if, but when they come, we are so much more amenable to sort of deal with that. It's about taking a moment to notice the small things in the day. And you do talk about gratitude and gratitude can be like, well, we're all supposed to be so grateful all the time, but you do talk about it, but it's like those little moments in the day. It's not about being happy all day. It's about those little moments that all add up right? Yes. And I think sometimes overall, we all look at the place of like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I wish, you know, and we're inundated by social media all the time. Oh my gosh, these guys took family pictures and you're yelling at your partner, like we need to take family pictures. And I'm looking at everybody drinking friggin' collagen and I'm not drinking enough collagen. And like, why does this, she worked out today. Oh my God, I'm a piece of shit. Cause I didn't work out. Like all of those things happen when we are constantly in that place of comparison. But I, I often say this, and I think it's so true. You tell me what you think of this. Anxiety and depression, that those are just emotional states, right? They're, they can be diagnoses, but they're emotional experiences. They, they can't kill you, but not talking about the might. Because we have to put stuff somewhere. You have to name it in order to tame it. Otherwise, you can't process it, right? And the more isolated we become, the less we interact with sort of checking with our colleagues, our people, our friends, the the ones who we really can trust their their insights and opinions of makes it very an isolating process that many of us then get stuck in our heads around. Let's talk about the, the being seen. And you talk about the power of really being seen 
and really seeing others. What does that look like? Okay. I love this question because every time when everybody asks me the name of the book, I'm like, it's feeling seen and they're like, feeling what? And it's such a colloquial term. You know, if you, if you watch across social media, any major player has often talked about like, I just felt so seen in this moment, or we make memes about it all the time. You know, when we see a mom who's like exhausted and trying to do 67 things, uh, I feel so seen, you know, and here's the definition from my perspective. It is an undeniable understanding of knowing, of feeling like somebody gets you. And it often happens without words, sometimes even without sound. It's this sense of connection that when you know it, it's almost like the perfection of the universe. It is like, I suddenly feel a connected kinship to another person, another thing, another experience. And when we feel seen, my gosh, it's a gift. And it is, it's like fuel for the soul. And we all have the ability to give that away. It is predicated on our own emotional regulation because you can't feel, you can't see another, you can't acknowledge another human being when you're emotionally dysregulated yourself. And it's strung together by empathy, which means that if I'm truly going to understand or have some insights around somebody else, I often have to suspend my own judgment, at least temporarily. It is about really sort of dropping your shoulders and wondering about genuinely another person's experience particular. And the more you're unlike me, the more I disagree with you, the harder it'll be. You know, I think when you talk about that, it it really is those little things in the day. Like, I, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I live in a city that people don't really look at each other very much. I was born and raised in a city where people look at each other probably too much. And there's such a huge difference in your day. I feel it when I when someone looks me in the eye and has a knowing look because we've had a shared experience, like something was happening over there and me and this other person just look at each other. And go, that kind of just that those small moments can I personally can make my entire day when I have those experiences, but we've completely forgotten about how powerful those can actually be. And now that I live in a place where people don't do that as much because people don't look at each other that much where I live, it seems to be everyone kind of looks down. Uh, you know, I, I really feel how important and powerful that is when it happens because it doesn't happen as often. Yes. And that's my whole point in feeling seen is like, be the change. This isn't going to be some leader's job. We're not going to get them prime minister or president or some senior exec that's going to come out with some great big policy or procedure or some big, like, this is the plan. It is actually up to you and me to do the next best right kind of thing. So if we notice that everybody is assholery-ish in that particular city, then be nice. See what happens. You will shock the ever-loving Jesus out of people. When you give somebody a compliment, they don't know what to do with it right? Even particularly the ones that we love the most. I mean, I'll, I'll challenge your listeners to think about this today. Send somebody you love right now a text that says, I don't know if I tell you this enough, but you matter to me. Okay. When I send something like that to my personal husband, we've been together for 15 years. We have three kids on the ground. When I send something like that to him, it's not usually a, a heart emoji that comes back. It's suspicion. It's like, what did you buy? What's wrong? What do you, are you okay? Right? The people we love the most are suspicious when we're kind because we tend to spend a lot of time wondering about what, what we're not doing right. 
rather than celebrating the things that are great. And when you do that with somebody where you do, who you don't have a relationship with, it tends to be easier, which is ridiculous actually, but it is easier to give somebody anonymous. This is how affairs start. I do a whole other section in the book around this because we're so desperate for connection, but we don't want to take the risk at you being able to crush my soul. So I'm much easier to be able to give it away to somebody that I don't, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of power to hurt me. But it's interesting. You can feel seen with somebody on the side of the road that you have never, ever met. You know, I think about the first responders in this world who show up in our biggest times of distress sometimes. And you lock eyes or you get each other and I can look at you and say, I got it. I got it. Come here, come here. And you are now the most important person in my world. Or I can look at my father who, um, you know, in a moment of clarity in the middle of his dementia and just everything that we've ever looked, we've ever sort of known in our 47 years together on this earth comes flooding back. The day he gave the speech at my wedding, you know, the first time we heard about his dementia diagnosis to watch him become a grandfather for the first time. All of those things are unspoken in our relationship. And when I slow down long enough to look at him, I see him. And so much of that is unwritten between so many of us in our relationships. And when I do, so I'm a therapist, uh, I'm a psychologist by training. And some of my favorite work, right, is doing marital therapy. And, And quite honestly, it's magic when you can get two people to slow down long enough and look at each other. It is so hard. I will say to somebody who's been married for 30 years, you know, they come in, their arms are crossed and they say things to me like, okay, well, she made me come here today. So like, what's the deal? She's a bitch. Like, what are we going to do about this? (laughs) And I will eventually, if I can get them to look at each other, if I can say, you know, tell me what it is, what, what is it about him? You know, it, regardless of, of, you know, the, 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 the sex of the couple, whether they're same sex or they're, um, it's irrelevant, a relationship, let me just say. Okay. If I say, can you just look at them right now and, um, you know, tell me what it is about them that, you know, first made you fall. And, and be connected to them. And it's very hard sometimes for them. They could, they say things to me. Can I tell you, do I have to look at them? I don't know what to say. Uh, okay. Well, you tell me first what it is. And they'll say, well, okay. So there was a time where, you know, I couldn't, it was only them that I could talk to. And we would have these like long conversations. And I just felt like it was incredible. Like, have you ever told them that? And generally speaking, they're like, yes, I tell them all the time. And the partner is usually sitting there going, no. And so then I will say, do you think you could turn to them right now and just sort of tell them what you just told me? And it's, remarkably difficult, but I will tell you every time that it happens, even if they fumble Frank their way through it, they'll turn and be like, okay, well, nobody ever really would talk to me like you did. And I just, I miss those days and I, and I love them. Those were some of the best moments of, of my life. And every single time I will say to this person, how did that feel? And then I say, oh, that's fine. When I look at their partner and I'll say, how did that feel for you? And generally speaking, there's tears. And I think in my head every time, like I just, we just orchestrated that whole exchange, but see, there's something between two people that have a history or that have a shared experience that often cannot be replicated, even with me in the same room. And so it's like facilitating those sometimes are the point of the best therapists on the planet, but it's also our responsibility of you and me to be able to understand that as leaders, as parents, as relationship partners, that that is our biggest superpower right now because we're all so empty. So here's a question then, how do we in our day to day, how can we protect our own mental health? Because when we connect with others, it, it, it's, it can be intense. It can be sometimes it can be disappointing. It can be draining. It can be very dispiriting when you connect with someone and they don't reciprocate. 
how do you how do you stay positive? How do you keep it going when when you don't really get a lot back? So I think that that is just sort of like number one right out of the gate. I think we should say that's going to happen, right? The expectation is the dance of feeling seen with another is very hard to get in sync right out of the gate. It's rare that you and I are, you know, let's say we've lived together for, you know, 20 years and I'm just feeling so connected to you and I want to have this really great conversation. It's it's going to be tricky that you're going to come through the door feeling the exact same way. And I'm going to be like, hey, do you want to sit down and have a glass of wine? You'd be like, what What are you talking about? We have 47 things to do. The dishwasher's not even clean. Did you let the dog out? I'd be like, you know what, bitch? I don't want to sit with you. Okay. So you can see then how you're not going to, it gets, we get into this standoff. So it's risky to even initiate that. One of my favorite psychologists actually has written about this her whole career. Harriet Lerner is her name. The dan- she's written The Dance of Intimacy and The Dance of Anger because it is such a dance. But the expectation is when we don't get it right, the question is why? When it doesn't feel like it lands, why? And how do we understand that this is never an end game? So if I'm going to stay in the game to be able to go back in again and again and again, and also know when I don't need to to tolerate bullshit, because this isn't always like you just keep giving till you, you know, people should just, you know, be nice to you. I think the new world order is this. And I talk about this in the book, be kind and don't tolerate bullshit in that order. So if I'm going to be able to stay as kind as I possibly can for as many days as a psychologist and an author and a business leader and trying to lead my team and manage my marriage and coach hockey and raise my three babies, I need to be the number one priority. And in the last part of the book, this is really the whole point of it is how do you get back when you lose your way? It's not if you're you're going to get arrived there and be there forever. You're going to fall off. So what do you do? And here's the three things. So some days to stay in the game, some days are terrible. I do none of these three things. I just drink wine. But in other days, if I'm really on it, there's the three things I talk about in the book, which is I need to reconnect to my people, to my breath, and to my why. So my people are a select few group. They're not your friends necessarily. They are the people who unequivocally are your biggest fans and will not hesitate to give you the feedback you need. Okay. They typically know your middle name. If a bra and makeup is required, it's not your people. If uh, they can make you belly laugh, generally that's how, you know, you decide. And I have five that I lean on. Um, One of them is no longer on this planet. So I talk to her probably the most. My husband comes on and off the list, depending on what we're talking about. But generally speaking, it's like, those are the ones that I need to know, no matter what mistakes or things happen in my world, I have them in my corner. So connecting to them is where I get a lot of strength from. And the second thing is my breath. And I take you through this little thing in the book where it's just like in any given moment, just drop your shoulders, relax your jaw, wiggle your toes, let your gut out. And when you get back to that physical state of emotional regulation, your brain follows. And in our most dysregulated states, I will tell you, anxious, anxiety, depression, fear, anticipatory, like that, you know, that we're messing our kids up or, you know, we're shitty employees. Our, Our shoulders are up. Our breathing is more shallow. And the counterintuitive issue to that is every time I take a look at my own cortisol levels, I just have a little sticky note on my desk, uh, a reminder on my phone that just says, drop your shoulders. Every time I promise you, guess where they are? Up around my ears. Even before I get out of bed in the morning, I challenge you this tomorrow. Before you even get out of bed in the morning, I want you to think about where your shoulders are. Because we think we should be relaxed before we even start our day, but we've usually scrolled other people's lives before we even brush our teeth. 
We've usually planned 87 things that could potentially go wrong and who's going to cook dinner and who's picking up the kids and what is happening here. Oh my God, I got to give that feedback today or that report's due. So before we even step out, we, you know, spike some cortisol, our oxytocin and our dopamine are nowhere to be seen. And so we, you know, we're in this place of like already behind it. And so it's really just getting back into that sense of I'm in control here. And then the last thing is really, I, I love this concept of Susan David's work around walking your why. Why are we here? What's the bigger picture? And, you know, you often hear this in imminent death where people say, you know, don't lose the little moments. You could be gone tomorrow. Hang on to the people you love. Like when we're up against it, we remember all those really important things. So why, why are you here? How do we pull that bigger picture into place, particularly when we feel the most lost? And so it's those three practices that I try to do on the basis when I know I'm feeling really dysregulated, which is I'm exhausted, I'm chippy, I'm irritable, I'm not eating and sleeping well, I'm drinking too much, I'm doing all of those things that are indicators that like, huh, right? In any one given moment, those are all okay. Those are all going to happen in our lives. But when I am not at my best, what do I need to be doing to get it back there? Because that is uh, the people I love will only be okay if I do that. And those are all things I think we really need to be remembering right now because you say that, you know, and I really relate to this, tolerance, empathy, and kindness are becoming less accessible because we're just all so exhausted and burned out. Which so you have to remind yourself to do those three things and to connect and to take a breath. Yeah, because you know it is, right? When you're regulated, you could write this friggin' book. This isn't, like, th- there's nothing about any of this stuff that we don't know inherently to the core when we're regulated. What we need is the people and the processes in place to get us back home every time we lose our way. And it's not about never losing your way again. It's about accepting the fact that this is a hard deal. There, You will lose the people you love. People will quit on you. Your relationships will disintegrate. Things are, people are going to die. This is, this is the, if we spend our whole life trying to avoid it, and many of us have been raised in that mindset, right? Prepare for all the shit that could go wrong because then you'll be ready for it, right? Oh my gosh, this is going to happen. What if she dies? What if this happens? Okay, don't don't get too cocky because like, mm, mm, mm. and the issue is there there needs to be this shift as we talked about at the beginning of uh, the episode is really how do we shift back to this idea about what's going right? Joy is a choice sometimes and stringing together those little moments of joy, even when you're in the front row of a funeral, can substantially change the way you show up in this world and you deserve it. What do you hope that the world will look like when we've achieved our reconnection revolution? What does that world look like to you? Yeah. So I I don't think we'll ever achieve it. I think it is always a work in progress. And I think what we will start to notice when you and I do this more and more in our communities, it's like, you know, Mother Teresa talked about this cast a stone. When you start to do this around the people you surround yourself with, it will feel more fulfilling. It'll feel more connected and there will be more joy because joy, laughter, joy is the most vulnerable emotion on the planet. If I judge the wellness of my own family system, it's how many times we belly laugh as a, as a family of five. If I take a look at my team, it is how much joy there is in the office. If it's, you know, people are chippy and irritable and trying to get their, you know, stuff done and they don't feel seen and nobody's showing up, then I'm missing something. 
what is that place when we are reconnected, when there's this revolutionary effort in our school system, you know, wherever your, your place is right now, your home, let's start there, your church, your school, the work you do around inclusion and diversity in your work, um, in your team, using your position of privilege, whatever that looks like to be able to then implement some change. You can't tell your kids how to be great. You have to show them. You can't tell them how to be anti-racist or demonstrate the things that you've learned. You got to show them. And the more you do that, the more you create the movement in your specific space. And that's, that's all we're responsible for. Next best right kind thing. As you said, we've never been more emotionally dysregulated and disconnected as a, as a, as a planet in the middle of all of this, what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? Mm, That's such a great question because it's interesting in the first half of this book, it's all about all the things that can go wrong. And anytime I do a talk about this, I always say, I'm going to rip your souls out and then put it back together because you can't address what you don't acknowledge, which is really my reason for talking about all the, the, the terrible stuff that got us here, the disconnectors, but the second and third parts, of the book. And anytime I ever talk about this is, it's always about, I've never had this much hope. I've never had this much optimism for humanity in this moment, because I have never, I've assessed and treated over a thousand kids in this country. I've never met a bad one. I've spent a lot of time with people who just desperately, once they are seen are the most remarkable humans you've ever met. And right now, I mean, I, I joke about this, but I really do mean it. The bar is so low. You can make such a significant amount of change today just by remembering that if you wave at everybody on the stoplight and the stop, like if you're driving in your car, listen to this, wave at somebody on the highway, next stoplight, wave, buy coffee for somebody behind you in the line, give your partner a compliment, even if you only half-ass feel it. Notice what happens. There's a genuine, there is a genuinity that is required for us to be able to, you know, truly give away something. So I, 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 you know, don't fake it. But it's really this idea of the more you can give it away, my goodness, that's where our power is. Your book is called Feeling Seen, Reconnecting in a Disconnected World. It's available now. Thank you so much, Jody Carrington, for speaking with me. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.